Tony, any other problems before we start? This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. <laughs> Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Okay, let's get this. It's Paul Verschur at Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. Uh, co-chairing the BCBT Summer School. And today we're with uh, Dorothy Fergasi, um, who was our speaker. And, and Dorothy, uh, who has a, a cough, so we will just ignore uh, those sounds. Um, so Dorothy, your, your, your talk focused on your work on tool use in monkeys, mm-hmm. right? So um, why tool use in monkeys? What makes that interesting? Well, tool use in in primates as a whole is is interesting from an anthropocentric perspective because humans uh, are are, um, the quintessential tool users. We have uh, shown tool use from the dawn of our species. Um, It's something that we know is culturally important and is important in uh, the success of our species. It's something that children show spontaneously from very early in life. It's a very essential component of, of being human. So when we see tool use in another species, we automatically are curious about whether they are using tools in the same way we are, if they are um, <clears throat> organizing that activity in the same way. And it, it, th- So that's the anthropocentric mm-hmm. perspective. And of course, there are, there are other reasons to be interested in it. You might be interested in it solely from the point of view of the biology of the animals themselves, mm-hmm. to understand what this behavior contributes to their way of life. Um, and you might also be interested in it uh, from the point of view of, of <clears throat> understanding um, the, the neural substrates or the anatomical mm-hmm. substrates that go along with the forms of tool use that are interesting mm-hmm. to humans. So in non-human primates, that means being interested in the use of the forelimbs and especially the hands. Um, and we see tool use in that mm-hmm. form in, in non-human primates that they're using tools with their hands. So we're interested in how that whole whole right. system is coordinated. Okay, so then you have tool <coughs> use. How now do we define tool and how do we define use? So what makes a tool? <clears throat> this is a very good question and there is no clear consensus in the animal behavior community about this. Uh, we recognize a tool after it has been used and it is a tool because it has been used. So almost anything can be a tool for some purpose. It isn't necessarily something. It's not an intrinsic quality of the object itself. It's imposed upon it by the actor who uses it for something. So for instance, I have a little box here Mm -hmm. of cardboard, and I can use this if I wanted to, to knock over my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that. But then if I did, I would Mm -hmm. be using this box cardboard box as a tool Mm -hmm. well when it's sitting here on the table without my doing anything with it nobody would say that that was a tool i I could use tony's laptop to wipe away the tea yes you could exactly he wouldn't like that but then so so the the point you 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 made there which i think was really important is to to realize that actually there's not a real theory at this point in time of of tool use no there's not there's a lot of theories about why individuals should use tools and um, some ideas about what kinds of individuals are able to do this but there's no single theory there is no theory of tool Mm. use is there a a reason to think that tool use is evidence of uh, a certain kind of cognition is is that a particular reason to focus on it um i in the animal behavior community, I would say no, because we see tool use defined. You asked me about the definition, so I'll come back to mm-hmm. that now. That what, what exactly is tool use? So um, as we have no theory of tool use, tool, tool use is defined descriptively as um, the phenomenon wherein an individual uses an object to produce a spatial or force relation, a a, a manipulatable object. So it has to be an unattached object that that the actor controls and moves and uses to produce a change in another object or a surface. Um, So for instance, I can use a shovel to dig a hole. I can use a probe to 
foot into a small opening to push something out. All those are examples of tool use. But there, there are many gray areas if you have as broad a definition as that. And so this is... Um, you know, a point of continuing discussion in the animal behavior community. In the, in the linguistic community and in the philosophical community, that there are other treatments of what constitutes a tool. I think um, Heidegger has talked about um, what constitutes a tool. He talks at ready to, about ready to hand and other things that some people have uh, discussed in terms of using mm -hmm. tools. But the animal behavior community mostly doesn't worry about the philosophical definitions, and they're more concerned with the very functional definition of controlling an object and moving it in space to achieve an outcome on an on a distal target, right. or sometimes even on the body itself. Well, it's interesting also, given Tony's question, that actually your definition is really emphasizing the pragmatics of tool use, right? Mm -hmm. so you gave four four criteria of, of uh, let's say, a functional extension mm -hmm. um, to act upon an object, the attainment of goals, mm -hmm. and that there's a force relationship. Mm -hmm. So so why do you highlight then these four properties of of tool use? Why do I highlight yeah, those? Yeah, why do you emphasize those, and why do you leave out this reasoning component that also Tony was sort of asking because about? Because I, I study behavior. I want, uh -huh. to, I want it to be observable. So those are aspects that I can measure directly or observe directly, and I can't observe reasoning directly. So the issue would include, let's say, a neurophysiological component that might give you a correlate of reasoning, then you would be happy to entertain it. I'm not ruling it out, but I, I, for me uh, to see, for example, if I had fMRI, um, <clears throat> functional fMRIs running the whole time that I was watching an individual use an object mm -hmm. as a tool, I might be able to say something about the, the, the neural activation that accompanies tool use, but I'm not sure I would be able to say which aspect of that image I'm looking at constitutes reasoning. Mm -hmm. Okay. But is, is this where the animal behavior community takes a different perspective than, say, the people looking in human anthropology who are looking at uh, hominid tool use as evidence of a progression towards uh, later forms of human cognition. Well, there there are um, there are people in anthropology who are sort of um, uh, bridging anthropology and neuroscience. I'm thinking, for example, of Dietrich Stout, who uh, does um, neuroimaging of humans as they are napping stone, for example. Um, so, I'm sorry, what was the question again? Well, is there a difference in perspective, perhaps, between that community and the animal behavior community? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. there is. Yeah, because an archaeologist um, or an anthropologist uh, is, is, is approaching it from a specifically anthropocentric perspective. Their, their interest is in explaining the origins of human behavior and in examining the similarities between... Um, behavior of non-human primates and human primates as in an effort to help understand the, um, the fossil record or the, the archaeological record of um, extinct hominids and, and you know, early human ancestors. So, so they have a vested interest in trying to understand what features of tool use might correspond to what sorts of evidence they find about early forms of tool use in in you know, in our ancestors. So they look, for example, at, at transport and selection of materials and things that are evident in the, in the archaeological record. And we can look at those things in behavior of extant primates as well. And there's a community of people that are, that are doing that. Susanna Carvalho is, is an example of a person who does that, and Michael Haslam, and there are others. <laughs> but you are bringing to your study some theoretical frameworks, but, but you're suggesting that those would be different ones. Perhaps. Yes. Well, my own work is, um, I would say, inspired by, not so tightly um, constrained by, but inspired by um, uh, a couple of different streams of reasoning in, in coming out of psychology and movement science out of psychology. Um, I've been inspired by the work of the Gibsons, J.J. and Eleanor Gibson, who um, jointly contributed greatly to the formation of, the, of a school of psychology known as ecological psychology. And um, they were both extremely active in the middle and later part of the 20th century. Um, and by the work of Nikolai Bernstein, who is a, um, a Russian 
um, physiologist, movement physiologist, who um, whose professional career was actually in the first half of the 20th century, but whose work was translated into English in the 1960s and, and became very influential in the, in the English-speaking community um, after that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the Gibsons emphasized the, um, the, the role of the individual in actively seeking information, um, using the senses uh, to gain information and, to, and, and the role of perceptual learning in the development of skill. And um, they emphasized that the, the information that an individual needs to, to perform tasks is in the environment. It's the, it's the individual's task to discover that information and to learn to make use of it, but not to somehow construct the information. Um, and uh, Bernstein's interest was in motor skills in particular, and so this is where uh, it dovetails for me with the e- an ecological perspective. So Bernstein was very interested in uh, how humans with uh, multi-joint limbs and, and, and many degrees of freedom of movement, um, how, how a, a system composed of many degrees of freedom could, could, be, um, could be organized to achieve a, a specific goal and to achieve that goal effectively uh, and um, with minimal effort, uh, even when circumstances vary. So for instance, if you are swinging a baseball bat and someone is pitching the ball to you and your goal is to hit the ball. Sometimes the ball is a little faster. Sometimes it's a little slower. Sometimes you have a bat that weighs a little more or a little less. Sometimes the pitch is a little inside or a little outside. And a skilled batter can handle all of that. Whereas a novice perhaps could handle, you know, one speed, one bat, one position, but not handle the variability. And Bernstein was very interested in how one assembled from all the multiple degrees of freedom in the joints and all the variation in, in the physical position of the body and so forth, how one could arrive at um, effective action even in the face of all these variations. So then the, you focus on non-human primates and mm-hmm. in particular uh, capuchin monkeys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but now you were, you were telling us that right now among the experts who, who count the number of non-human primates that are around there are about 500 species of non-human primates more than more than yeah okay so the the number changes but it's somewhere around 560 but it may be a little more by now new species discovered all the time okay but it's (coughs) of that order Mm -hmm. yeah and so now of, of all these species we know how many are really known to use tools in a way that would be let's say accepted um so the among the old world monkeys, the Burmese macaques, Macaca fascicularis, and then there's a subspecies name that indicates the Burmese version. Mm-hmm. I think it's Aurea, but I'm not exactly certain of the subspecies designation. And the orangutan, and the common chimpanzee, and the bearded capuchin uses uh, tools routinely and habitually. And there are some other capuchins in the same genus as the bearded capuchins, which is now recognized as belonging to the genus Sapaju, which is a sister genus to Cebus. Mm-hmm. It was originally, it, it has historically for a long time been in the genus Cebus, and in 2012 split into Sapaju. Mm-hmm. So this is very recent. And there are uh, two other species of Sapaju that are that have been observed to use tools in nature, and they mm-hmm. are both uh, in adjacent areas uh, to where the libidinosis is, the, the mm-hmm. bearded capuchin. Okay, so there's the two things then. That means of these 500 plus, or let's <coughs> say 600 if you round it up, uh, species of non-human primates, there's a handful, let's say 1%, that are, that are known to sort of routinely use tools. In, in the wild. In the wild. Yeah. And of those, those six, they appear to be rather strongly also more genetically related to each other than to the rest of these species or not. Or there's no... Well, the New World monkeys, the capuchins, are uh, uh, very remotely related okay. to the Old World primates. The split was right. somewhere around 35 million years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then so the split between the New World and the Old World simian primates mm-hmm. was about at that time. Um, and the split among the... Uh, other apes, the mm. chimpanzees, the orangutans, and the humans, is much more recent than mm-hmm. that, perhaps 10 million years or less. So there's there's a big 
temporal gap mm -hmm. in the uh, most recent shared ancestor between the, the New World monkeys mm -hmm. and so the, the Old World monkeys. So the important conclusion being This is that probably independently exactly, right. evolved, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so independently evolved, but also independent of, let's say, or it's less likely to strongly depend on a on a genetic program, on genetic pre-specification, right? It's, it, right? It's, well, it, it, it would be impossible for me to specify what sort of genetic program could mm -hmm. result in the suite of attributes that I think right, support exactly. tool use. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're very diffuse mm -hmm. and they're related more to foraging style. Mm -hmm. It's not a specific action or a specific problem that they use tools to solve. Mm. It's something about these species' mm. approach to what they can do with objects. Right. So but if it's if it's convergent, um, are we are we looking at uh, a set of features that are converging? Uh, so, um, for instance, are there anatomical features that appear to be convergent? For uh, I would say uses? no. Um, the 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 forms of tool use that non-human primates perform involve using their hands to hold an object, but it's usually holding the object in in a relatively uh, common way, in what we would call a, a a power grip. They're not necessarily using very fine precision to manipulate very small objects. They're not sewing, for example. So um, a power grip would be using all your fingers? Yeah, in a convergent grip. Right. And that's that's sufficient. That's all you need. If what you want to use is a stick to probe into a hole, you don't need a precision grip. You can use a power grip, and they do. Mm -hmm. So, so um, it isn't a, a point of um, uh, differential dexterity. Um, right. So, But in, it, it is, that if you look what is common across these species, it's not unique to them, but it is common to them that they are um, extractive foragers. And so from an ecological perspective, um, an, ind an individual that is finding food in hidden locations and has to work to open up a substrate and get at what's inside, that individual is oriented towards the possibilities of objects that it can't see. You, ha you have to find something behind an exterior. So you are interested in destroying objects and getting at things. And this way of life promotes an interest in, I would say, acting roughly mm -hmm. with objects, with breaking them, with banging them, with moving them around, with being proactive towards objects. There's a lot of handling involved. And these species all do that. So, but uh, we have a precision grip where we can use our opposable thumb. Humans so precisely do. Grip yes. Things. Now, um, how common is that in the rest of the uh, non-human primates? So the the precision grip in the human form, where the thumb rotates to face the other digits, and you have a, a perfect opposition possible between the tip of the finger of the index finger and the thumb. Uh, old world primates can do that. Um, so that includes old world monkeys and includes apes and humans. Um, humans, the, the uh, morphology of the human hand is a, a little bit different. Each species' hand is a little bit different from the next species. Um, so we achieve this grip in, in a human way, and other species accomplish it in a slightly different way. For example, the thumb of apes is much smaller than the thumb of humans, so they have to bend the index finger farther to touch the thumb, for example. But they still achieve a, a perfectly useful precision grip, despite the fact that their thumb is much shorter than ours. Um, all old world monkeys have the joint morphology to achieve that kind of movement of the thumb and opposition of the, of the fingers. Um, New world monkeys, as, as far as we know, only one group of New world monkeys uh, can achieve that kind of a precision grip. Um, but we, we actually haven't explored very much among all the species, so I don't want to claim that no other uh, New World monkey does this, but I can say that so far we know that capuchins can do it, and that's both genera, Cebus and Sapaju, and we don't know very well about other species. But capuchins, in any case, can um, uh, achieve a functional opposition, uh, and they place the side of the thumb against the side or the or the pulp of the index finger. And it works functionally. It's not as strong a precision grip as humans achieve, but it, it, it works. It's, you know, you can pick up small objects in that way. But that would be then the only species known to do that. 
New World monkeys. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, but in terms of the kinds of of tool use that you see mm-hmm. among you non-human primates, it's not that you have so many variations on that, right? So you talked about percussive tool use mm-hmm. and probing, uh, and and then there, there's there's <coughs> probing and sponging. I think. Yeah. Sometimes mentioned. sponging and yeah. a few other things, scraping. Um, mm-hmm. And using a tool as an extension of the arm to pull something right. in, as, as in. But are machine. there common features among these forms of tool use? Well, they're, they are structurally simple forms of tool use. Mm-hmm. Um, so an object held in the hand uh, is used to create a force relationship, a spatial force relationship with something out in front, but it's a single order kind of relationship. It's, it's the tool to one other thing. So um, it's not the tool to something else with joints and then another thing. Mm-hmm. And, it's, it's not, and it's not bimanual. Um, it's, uh, it's a relatively simple form of tool use mm-hmm. in terms of the number of right. spatial relations that have mm-hmm. to be produced and have to be monitored and, and uh, have to be produced concurrently. Mm-hmm. So they're generally producing one. Right. But then in terms of their, if you'd characterize tool use in these animals in terms of their complexity are there any patterns that emerge in that well um there are different metrics for complexity mm-hmm. um because we have no single theory guiding our investigation of tool use people arrive at different metrics that make sense for their particular purpose so sometimes people are interested in the sequences of actions. Sometimes they're interested in the hierarchical organization of actions, that the sequence has to be done in a, in a certain order for things to work. Sometimes people are interested in the number of, of uh, tools used to achieve a, a single goal. So they talk about a toolkit. Uh, there are probably a few others that I listed in my talk that are not coming to my mind at this moment. Well, sequence, number of actions, hierarchical organization, selection and transport of materials. Yeah, which we already talked about. And the number and nature bit. of spatial relations. And the number and nature of spatial relations. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if you think about those characteristics, we, we know that um, at least, uh, well, we know best for capuchins and for chimpanzees that they will transport materials, both the objects, in this case it's percussive tool use, um, and chimpanzees also for probing tool use, um, that they will transport the tool to the site of use, and they they also, in the case of nut cracking, they will transport the nut to the site of the anvil. So there is transport happening. Um, the details of how far they transport and, and, and um, how selective they are about the, what they transport are, are being investigated empirically. And I can't, you know, mm-hmm. give you a lot of detail. We know that, that, that chimpanzees will transport hammer stones up to 100 meters or so. Mm-hmm. And we know that the same is true for capuchins, although we haven't done the uh, careful examination of that that has been recently carried out by Julia Siriani for the, for the chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something we need to work on with the capuchins. I can't tell you, right. but I've seen them carry tools at least 80 meters. So, I mean, I don't think there's a big difference between the chimps and the, mm-hmm. and the capuchins in that domain. Right. Um, the, they are selective in the tools they select in the tools they pick up and bring. Uh, and this is when they are far enough away from an anvil that they can't have the anvil in view when they're doing it. So mm-hmm. there is some prospective selection of materials and that's true in capuchins and chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. Probably also true in Burmese macaques, although we, we're, that's uh, been discovered much more recently, and so uh, we don't know as much about that mm-hmm. that group. Right. But so the, then in, in the, the actual data you were discussing was very much derived from uh, capuchin monkeys. Exactly. Right? My, my own knowledge is right. about capuchin okay. monkeys. Which, which seem a rather extraordinary... Uh, type of monkey i have to say Mm -hmm. i mean so you were telling us they were getting fairly old um have large brains also a fairly long period of let's say um juvenescence Mm -hmm. um and long periods also of let's say instruction and training Mm -hmm. right so so what what are sort of for you the properties of tool use in these capuchin monkeys that, that that stand out and how have you assessed those properties um, well, when we when we first discovered this, first of all, we couldn't believe our good fortune. We could hardly believe our eyes, um, because it's it's truly impressive to watch, really. Um, and 
what I was struck by immediately is that it's very skillful. It is extremely skillful. For one thing, it is, it is a physically very strenuous. So these are relatively small monkeys weighing two or three or four kilos in adulthood. And of course, the juveniles are smaller. And they're picking up stones um, to crack very resistant palm nuts uh, that they place on an anvil. So there's, there's a nut on the anvil. And then the monkey, this little monkey, is picking up a stone that on average weighs at least half its body weight. It's about a kilo is the normal weight of uh, average weight of a hammerstone in our in our area, and and they are lifting it shoulder or head height or sometimes even over the head, and bringing it down with great force, on a in a directed way in a controlled way on this nut which is relatively large but it's still a fairly small target, mm-hmm. so they're bringing down this very heavy stone on top of the nut. They don't want to have the nut roll away, and they don't want to have the stone fall off the anvil, and they don't want to hit their toes, and they don't want to harm their hands. And I can tell you that when humans try to do this, we're much bigger. We can generate a lot of force with the stone. We are, we are actually, when we are novices, which most of the research team is novice at cracking nuts, we are not good at it at all. And after three strikes, our hands hurt because we're hanging on to the stone tightly when it strikes the nut and the rebound force hurts. Mm -hmm. So after a few strikes, people say, well, I think I'm done now. Mm -hmm. And they haven't cracked the nut. Mm -hmm. So, but the monkeys have, have worked out a strategy to cope with this. They do it repeatedly. They're, they're, they're not bruising their hands. They don't leave the anvil, you know, Mm -hmm. shaking their hands as if they hurt or something. So they are obviously managing these, the production of force in, in a precise trajectory and monitoring in some way, monitoring the, the position of the stone and the force that should be applied to the nut and doing this all in a way that is not evident when you first see it, but you, you know that there's something like that going on because the whole system is so smooth mm-hmm. and so beautiful to watch. Right. But then, in some sense, what you also showed us is that these monkeys are real experts in this because they trained for quite a while. Yes, they have. So how how does this training process exactly work? Well, it's self-initiated and self-supported in the sense that there is a intrinsic motivation to manipulate objects and especially to percuss objects, which even very young monkeys will do. And it's part of their normal foraging, so they do it all all throughout their lives as part of normal life. So, But when it becomes focused on nuts and on stones, initially the young monkeys, the very young monkeys, are working directly with the nuts. They're not big enough to pick up stones, and they're not, they don't really have the skill to put the nut down and pick up the stone and strike the nut. So they're initially focusing on the nut itself, and there's just a lot of exploration of the, of the nut in the hands. They're rolling it, they're knocking it, they're sweeping it around on the top of the surface and doing many things with the nuts. I've, we've seen monkeys juggle with mm-hmm. nuts a little bit, just kind of just holding them up. And I mean, th- we've seen monkeys take the nut and stick it in a little knot in a tree, in and out, in and out, mm-hmm. in and out. I mean, anything you can do with a nut in a sort of playful, generative way they will do that. Sooner or later, a monkey will do that. They don't all do all these things, but if you sit there and watch them long enough, you see amazing combinations mm-hmm. of things that make no sense initially, mm-hmm. but they're all part of play. And then the, then the young monkeys, um, when they are between one and two years old and they're spending quite a bit of time on the ground, about a third of their time on the ground, as do the older individuals, all the adults, um, they are attracted to places where adults are cracking and from the cracking activity of others, there is an accumulation of, of artifacts, of debris, nutshells, and the s- stones that were used because the stones are typically left on the anvil. They're not carted away. So the anvil and the stone are relatively constant features, and the nutshells are there, and the nutshells don't degrade. So they're there for a long time. So a young monkey in the vicinity of others that are cracking can see and can hear, and it's a very dramatic activity. It's 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 attention grabbing. Mm-hmm. You can't just not know that your neighbor is cracking a nut. You know, you you hear it and you see it. It's a whole body motion. It's dramatic. Mm-hmm. So the young monkeys see and hear this activity. They see the adults eating. They can also smell what is going on. And they 
also themselves sample the bits of nuts that are still in the shells because there are shells around. And the adults are quite tolerant of the very young monkeys near them at the anvil site. They allow them to be very close and watch. And even when they're, when they're done cracking to come up and collect bits, mm-hmm. we call that scrounging. So there is a certain amount of scrounging. So the young ones are, I would say, inducted. They're into the into the cult of, mm-hmm. of nutcracking, and they're they're interested in all these materials and in this place. So they are drawn to the place that has the appropriate materials, and they are intrinsically motivated to interact with these materials, and it proceeds mm-hmm. from there. Okay. So the the learning you're describing is is very much sort of uh, the infants exploring. Mm-hmm. In, in a context in which mm-hmm. nutcracking nut is going it's on. It's a socially supported context. Right. And and one of your theoretical frameworks is the Gibsonian ecological mm-hmm. psychology in which the notion of uh, the affordances that an mm-hmm. object might have for behavior is, is very important. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, the famous example is that a doorknob affords turning mm-hmm. so that rather than necessarily focusing on the properties of the doorknob, what you learn about it is that if you turn it, the door opens. Mm-hmm. I mean, so is that framework useful for you in thinking about mm-hmm. what the monkeys are learning? It, it is. I don't think that they think very much about what the stone is useful for outside of nutcracking, although they sit on them. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, they're not... Um, uh, anyway, it seems to me that they, when they are interacting with stones initially and with nuts... They are, certainly when they're handling nuts, they are learning about the affordances of the nut for direct percussion, but also how it moves in their hand and how it moves on a surface. It rolls, uh, and they eventually have to um, manage that feature of nuts because when you put it on an anvil and strike it, it's going to roll or fly off the anvil unless it's in a relatively stable position, which they achieve by putting the nut into a pit. And by placing it specifically in a certain orientation in the pit. So I was wondering if uh, the, the young animals play with stones, and if there's some qualitatively qualitative differences between their play behavior with stones and as compared nuts. to nuts. Um, we don't have great data on that. Um, so we have seen them. They do also strike stones directly. They strike nuts directly far more often. This makes sense to me because the nut is actually their goal object, so to speak. The stone is a secondary thing. So they're more interested in the nuts than in the stones. But they do also strike nuts, uh, I'm sorry, strike stones directly. So the, the combination of the nut and the stone, they, they, I think they are assisted in learning that from hanging around the adults. Um, also, the stones that the adults use as, as hammer stones, um, especially rather soon after they've used them, they still have a, a sort of oily residue from the nut uh, shell. And if they've cracked a nut, sometimes some of the residue of the kernel of the nut is also on the stone. So they smell good. They smell like nuts. So the, so the young ones uh, both see the adults using the stone on the nut, and the stones smell like nuts, and they're on the anvil or near the anvil, and they're right there with all the nutshells. So there's a lot of association of the stone with the nut-cracking area and activity, even if the young ones are not themselves able to to pick up the stone and move it. They, they will also, they will often, though, take the nut and strike it on the stone. This is rather right. common. The little ones do quite a lot of that. They do more direct percussion of nut on, onto the anvil, but they will also just simply take the nut and strike it on the stone, which is the closest they can get to picking up the stone and striking the nut right. they can't pick the stone up. And, and then does the combination of uh, anvil, nut, and stone come later? It, it, it does appear later developmentally, and, and what you see is a young one on the anvil with a nut, and it puts the nut down, and it strikes the nut up and down. But one thing that's actually, I didn't have time to talk about this in my talk today, is that um, the, in, in a previous work by Briseida Hacende in, in Sao Paulo, um, she did a longitudinal study of uh, the onset of nutcracking in a um, semi-free population of monkeys, provisioned monkeys in a regenerating forest in a park outside of Sao Paulo City. And um, in that population, they they crack small palm nuts, Sayagras palm nuts, that are sort of the size of an acorn. So they can do that with a much smaller stone, and, and it, they use much less force. So in that 
situation, the young monkeys that she was following, um, the, the, the parallels with the monkeys that we watch in Boa Vista are perfect. I mean, they're, they're doing the same things, although the smaller size of the nuts and the smaller size of the stones gives those monkeys a, 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 an advantage. They can manage these things when they're smaller. So they have a bit of a temporal advantage in terms of the, the, mm-hmm. the physical strength they need to manage the stones. But in that population, the, what, she, what she found was that the young monkeys, um, that the, they, the, the, the last thing to appear in the whole sequence of cracking is to put the nut on the anvil and then release it so think about it. If you're an arboreal monkey and you've got something you want, the last thing you want to do is let go of it. It's just going to fall to the mm. ground. Uh, so they're, they're on the ground, if you release something, it stays there. It might move a little, but it just stays there. And, this, and they, have to, they have to learn to allow the thing they're interested in to be released and then take the stone and, and hit it. So, and at that point, they have to switch attention from one object to another so you're still interested in the nut, but you have to let go of it and leave contact with it. And then you have to pick up a stone and then hit it. So it's, a, it's an integrative attentional problem. You have to bring the stone into the zone of attention, if you will, while you've still got the nut there. And this is the hardest part for the capuchins. Right. So it's interesting that for chimpanzees, I think it's different. Chimpanzees don't do a lot of percussion. Uh, they they do far less percussion in just an exploratory way than capuchins do. Um, and for the young chimp who's learning to crack stones, for them the difficult part is 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 cracking with with a stone. It's the it's the percussion act that they're not really likely to perform. That's the least likely part of their sequence is to pick up the stone and whack something. For the capuchins, the least likely part of the sequence is to leave the nut down on the anvil and take your hand off it. So they have, they, they are, they, I think they have different developmental challenges mm-hmm. in learning this sequence. And it means that also these elements will appear later in the, in the developmental process. Right. In, uh, differentially for the capuchins. Right. So and the and last the thing to appear mm-hmm. is that you put the nut down and you let it go and mm-hmm. you pick up the stone and hit it. And we often see, for example, young ones will have two pieces of shell or two nuts or something and they'll be on the anvil and they'll be hitting one and then they they then they then they pick that one up but then then they have to hit this one so mm-hmm. they're going back and forth like they can't figure out which one to hit because they can't figure out which one to let go of mm-hmm. and but now if, if we focus on this learning phase mm-hmm. right so uh, what are the minimal ingredients with which this monkey must be thrown in the world to actually start to learn this and and the point is that um, if you talk about an intrinsic motivation, okay, that's fine, but an intrinsic motivation for what? Yeah. Right? The, the intri- so what are these minimal <laughs> ingredients that are required? Well, I'm, I'm, it's conjecture here. Of course. I'm, no, I'm, look, designing, is... I'm designing a monkey. Mm-hmm. So I think that what they bring to this task is um, an intrinsic interest in interacting with objects and in, especially in percussion, which is part of their normal foraging activity and it, it, it's part of exploring their world to know even mm. what to eat and Meaning how to do the it. Infant capuchin monkey would basically grab any object of a certain size and, and just exactly. press it on. Yeah, they okay. do. Anything that can mm-hmm. be banged, they try okay. that. Okay. Leaves, twigs, mm-hmm. anything. Right. Um, so they are interested from a very young age in actually from the age at which they have enough postural stability to take one arm and swing it forcefully. That's when they begin to bang, mm-hmm. as soon as they can, basically. Um, so that's a key ingredient, because if you don't have that initial um, action to work on, you, you're never going to get nutcracking without at least some of that. Uh, and, and capuchins have a lot of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so then secondly, you have to have um, uh, enough motivation to do it, if once you have uh, um, an instrumental goal, you have to have enough interest in working towards that goal for a very long time. Because for them, the learning period where they're doing this activity in in various forms is years. It's it's literally something like three or four years before they can actually crack a nut very effectively. So in this long period of time, 
they must generate a lot of percussion and they must enjoy it enough to keep doing mm-hmm. it. They have to get their 10,000 right. hours or mm-hmm. so increasingly. But then uh, combined with that, now to get back to the notion of affordance, you also indicated that you know the traces of nutcracking are around them, mm-hmm. right? So they, they, they will f- see the shells, they might, might see the anvil, they might see the, the pits and the stones and so on. How much are those, is that residue or are these traces of nutcracking also affording the learning process? There's, is that really a trigger? Yeah, there, I think they're a strong support. Our data show that, the, that being around an anvil is associated with a very large increase in uh, manipulation of nuts. And it do- doesn't have to be that way because the nuts are very portable, especially the shells. By nut, I mean nut or nut shell mm-hmm. in this case. Um, and that's very portable. So if the infants wanted to, if the juveniles wanted to, they can pick up a piece of nutshell and they can go somewhere else with it. They don't mm-hmm. have to stay right by the anvil and manipulate the thing near an anvil. And in our data, the kids are manipulating nut materials, nut shells, nuts, uh, especially at especially high rates around the anvils. So the anvil is a place where you go when you feel like manipulating nuts, you go there. Or if you happen mm-hmm. to go to an anvil, then you begin to manipulate nuts. Right. So it's kind of a trigger for mm-hmm. the activity. And so the fact that these are enduring artifacts uh, mm-hmm. is certainly supports it. And this is, this is actually not so unlike a human situation mm-hmm. where we have artifacts of, of our culture's everywhere in our homes and in our towns and you know kids encounter chairs everywhere mm-hmm. and they encounter common tools cups glasses right. but in the in the environment in which just your population of monkeys lives they wouldn't have a few anvils to which they transport the nuts or they just find a, find a nut and then find an appropriate spot where they can crack it both Mm-hmm. See, if, if, you, if you find a nut somewhere, you would go to the nearest anvil because you have to go somewhere that has a hammerstone. So the hammerstone is the limiting resource here, not the anvil per mm-hmm. se, because there, there are many possible um, anvil sites. You need a relatively flat, hard surface. You can use uh, virtually any boulder or uh, sometimes a fallen log will also serve if it has a broad surface. And... Um, uh, but the hammerstones are rare because the the predominant stone in that area is a relatively soft sandstone, mm-hmm. and that's unsuitable for cracking nuts. It just breaks in your hand if you take a big chunk of sandstone and whack it; it just falls apart. But uh, so they are mainly using um, siltstone and ironstone and quartzite cobbles. Quartzite cobbles are washed in from some ancient flood, who knows how many eons ago, and probably more than one. And they're in layers in the in the uh, sandstone. And as the ridges erode, uh, the cobbles are exposed, and they either are just exposed in situ or eventually they fall down. Mm-hmm. So in the transition zone between the cliff and in the talus area where the where the uh, um, the the boulder fields are for where the sandstone has eroded and fallen and where there are ephemeral streams in the rainy season mm-hmm. there there it can rain hard and then there are these uh, channels where water comes mm-hmm. down off the off the cliffs and the plateaus down into the valley and um, there are um, uh, quartzite cobbles that accumulate there. They're mainly small little pebbles, mm-hmm. but there are also occasionally larger stones, and the monkeys use the larger mm-hmm. stones to crack the nuts. But then do you see that in their migration patterns, <laughs> in their migration patterns, these monkeys would sort of consolidate locations <coughs> where they find these stones, or they are, migration patterns are not dependent on the possibility to find they, such their, their, their home range is not dependent on where the anvils are, but there are many anvils scattered around no, in the, their home the, range. The, the, but the stones, the stones, the hammerstones. The hammerstones are transported to an anvil site. Okay. So they may be transported a very short distance if the if if there is a suitable boulder right next to this stream and you mm-hmm. find a hammerstone in the stream, then you just go two or three meters and you're at the anvil. If you if but we also find hammerstones in very unlikely places like the top of the ridge mm-hmm. and uh, somewhere off in the in the mm-hmm. you know distant from any water right. source. So they they transport these stones around. Yeah, that's what as I was well. wondering about because you could imagine that in this capuchin uh, culture. 
the the scarce resource is the hammerstone. So exactly. you can imagine when they migrate that they would actually carry hammerstones along. Well, well, they along. don't migrate. They don't migrate. Okay. Let me let me correct that. They have a home range that they move around during the during the day, and they cover the home range. You know, they travel into mm-hmm. different parts of their home range periodically. So um, they travel a few kilometers mm-hmm. a day, perhaps overall, linear distance. Um, and uh, they sometimes take a hammerstone with them when they leave an anvil. But they do that especially if there is some competition. So if a, if a juvenile or a subordinate adult is on an anvil with a hammerstone and is about to be displaced by a more dominant individual, if the individual that's got to leave is able to do so, it will take that hammerstone. Mm-hmm. If the hammerstone is too heavy... You're just stuck. You just have to leave, and you leave your hammerstone behind. Mm-hmm. In any case, uh, sometimes we see individuals transporting hammerstones from one anvil to another. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we understand a competitive reason for it, and sometimes we don't know why they do it. So we're using the word uh, capuchin culture here to to describe what's happening. And uh, you know, when we think of that in human terms, we... We also think of things like cultural transmission. So, mm-hmm. you know, something might be invi- invented in one place, and but it rapidly spreads as uh, you know other tribes mm-hmm. copy or, mm-hmm. or that initial invention. I mean, do you think that there is cultural transmission uh, between Capuchin, or is it m- much more something that you know they will they will discover for themselves, or do they have to see it? Um, th- let me back up to the word culture for yeah. a moment because that's a loaded word. Well, mm-hmm. that's what I was thinking. Um, it's a loaded... Well, I brought it up as well, right? So yeah. I'm fully responsible yeah. Yeah. for some words. I use the word tradition because it avoids some of the extra meaning that's associated with that word from a, an anthropocentric perspective uh-huh. because, of course, there are many components that people think are critical to culture that in humans that are not evident in Capuchins. Okay, I mean, could you elaborate? Well, for example, yeah. religion, symbolic systems, uh, f- I don't know. There are many others that, that are, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, so mm-hmm. you have to forgive me if I okay. don't have their list. But, but and, and, and anthropologists also have a tough time agreeing on exactly what is in culture. But in any case, it's a longer list than what we can say is in the, present in the Capuchins or the or chimpanzees or mm-hmm. any ape except humans. Okay. So in any case, let's talk about traditions. But the question still stands, um, how, if this is a, a socially aided learning system, uh, is, it, is it likely that this particular behavior would be evident in a group without these social supports for learning? That, that's your question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and is it possible that this is socially transmitted? It's absolutely possible, yeah. and I think it's absolutely the case, and that's exactly right. what our data show, that that is they show... They don't show what happens if an individual does not have social support because we don't take monkeys out of their social group and watch them grow up without partners. But in this natural setting where where we have our observational data, so we can't assign cause and effect, but the pattern seems to be that the young monkeys are growing up in this socially supportive setting with all the right materials and all the right social prompts to do these things. And they have the time to practice over a lengthy, over years. Uh, and in, and this supports the development of this skill that I think is, is a, um, in the way that they perform it, has to be seen as a, a kind of extreme skill mm-hmm. in terms of the difficulty of mastering all these components. There are other groups of capuchins in other places that also display nutcracking, and I imagine they have their own components of skill in what they're doing. I, I just don't happen to know no. them as well. Okay. But it would suggest the possibility of maybe a lab-based experiment where you take mm-hmm. a New World monkey species not known to use tools in the wild, but you expose them to um, you know, a tool-use culture. And you could see mm-hmm. maybe from observing humans cracking nuts, would a, a, a non-tool-using New World monkey perhaps pick up that mm-hmm. skill? No, I can tell you they don't. Okay. <laughs> we've, so. we've tried that. Um, it's, it's not something that monkeys learn by just observing without deep familiarity with the materials involved and deep interest in the outcome of the, of the, of the activity. And, uh, you know, it would have to be a sort of live-in 
experience. Well, uh, I was thinking of, you know, a sort of a Kanzi-like sort of immersion in a tool-using uh, environment, you know, well, where you're surrounded by them and people are showing you all the time and playing with you, you know, in the way that we intensely expose our children to the kinds of uh, objects and things that we want them to engage with as they grow older. So I, I don't think situation. I don't think it would be a success. Um, right. That is, um, in the case of capuchin monkeys, people have kept them as pets for a long time. You know, uh, Native Americans have kept capuchins as pets, and they still do for lots of reasons. Sometimes they end up in the pot after a while, but we won't talk about that. Um, in any case, uh, capuchins that are kept uh, in human homes. Um, will sometimes begin to use objects for things that, you know, people don't intend them to do. Um, and they can be trained. Uh, this is the uh, basis for a, a program that you might have heard of, um, Helping Hands. Mm -hmm. And there's a, right, there, there yeah. have been some other programs where the goal is to use a, a non-human primate, a capuchin monkey, in fact, as an aid for a quadriplegic person to do things that require hands, like opening the refrigerator and taking a glass out and attaching mm -hmm. a straw and, and something like that. And uh, so capuchins can learn to do many things with with objects. Uh, but actually for those training programs, it, it, it hasn't been shown that um, using a demonstration model helps in the training at all. They, mm -hmm. they use straightforward reinforcement. Right. Shaping but and to training. follow up on that, um, so that means in this case, in, so in in the literature on the development of skill, at least in, in in humans, there's a strong distinction between an imitation-based interpretation versus an interaction-based interpretation. Mm -hmm. So I understand from you that if you had to choose, you would say, well, the capuchin acquires the skill very much through interaction and mm -hmm. less through imitation. Right. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, mm. except I would add the proviso. By, by interaction, I, I wouldn't include direct interaction from the more proficient individual with the right. less proficient exactly. because there's no, mm. there's no mm -hmm. teaching or intentional right. showing. Mm. It's just in the course of daily life, the kids are exposed to this over and over and over again mm -hmm. in a supportive exactly right. setting. Okay. Um, so the capuchins have become specialized for tool use uh, away from the other New World monkeys, is yes. what I was getting yes, at. Yes, that's true. Yeah, and, uh, and you can see that, I guess, morphologically as well in the, 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 the amount of dexterity they have with that. Yeah, hands. although I wouldn't attribute that to tool use because okay. all capuchins have this and only some capuchins species right. use tools. So the, the uh, enhanced mobility of the thumb and, the, and dexterity of the fingers that we see in the capuchin monkeys um, is, um, uh, is, is, I think, better associated with their extractive foraging style, right. which they are specialized in extraction as well as in tool use. So they're, they're really more specialized in, ex in foraging, extractive foraging, than anything else. And so, other than that, they're right. dietary generalists, they're habitat generalists. They're, they're very adaptable monkeys. And tool use is one example of an unusual adaptation of a behavior that they can acquire. So, so these tool using uh, monkeys, uh, are you able to show that there are other cognitive tests perhaps on which they do better than some Not other? Yet. Not yet. Is, is there a program <laughs> to look at that? Well, first you have to realize that the uh, taxonomy of the genus has been shifting under our right. feet the last few years. Yeah. So at the moment, um, most of the colonies, lab colonies that work with tufted capuchin monkeys, um, work with, we always called them Cebus apella. Now we no longer know what they are. Um, so we don't even know exactly what species we have for the most part. Well, there has to be some further analysis to even know what species we're working with. Um, Okay, now what did you ask me? I'm sorry, I lost the train of thought. Whether, whether there would be a program to look at mm -hmm. more broadly. At, at oh, a cognitive, cognitive variation across the genus? Well, uh, yes. Or oh, a research between, program, no? I guess. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I mean, I, the, what would be interesting, I think, in the, the context of particularly this week when we're looking at evolution and development mm -hmm. was uh, whether these are animals that have evolved uh, Something tool new. use as part of a cluster mm -hmm. of increased yeah. cognitive capacity, it's, or is it very much just one thing that's improved? Yeah, I wish I could. I wish mm -hmm. I knew. Yeah. And um, we don't have the 
nobody is pursuing that at the moment right. because we're, you, what you would need is a colony of, uh, you would need to know what form of tufted capuchin you had, and then you would need another species that does not use tools. And at, at the moment, what's surprising is that for, for the past 50 years, people have worked with tufted capuchins identified as Cebus apella, and, and, and our lab studies right. on tool use have used Cebus apella. Now that we have uh, revised the taxonomy, Sapaju apella actually doesn't use tools in the wild, and Sapaju libidinosis does. So what it would be really grand to do is to have Sapaju apella, the proper apella, mm-hmm. and libidinosis, because they are otherwise, uh, they're not, they are, they um, do not live in exactly the same places, but they border one another. And and actually they, yeah, they just, they just border one another. Um, and they inhabit rather similar habitat types. They're, they're ecologically rather similar. Or anyway, some other species that is morphologically quite similar to libidinosis, but is not known to use tools in the wild and set up captive colonies of those and we don't we don't have that set up yet but dorothy are actually aren't across all primatologists are you not already implicitly running such an experiment as you mentioned this morning because you say look if these animals acquire this skill through interaction with the materials mm-hmm. and with and, and their affordances it does mean they must have a certain creative ability mm-hmm. and an ability of insight and in that, what you were describing this morning, if you just look at the way capuchin monkeys are kept as compared to chimps, there are some striking differences because these capuchins seem to be very capable in escaping, essentially. Well, chimps can too. Yeah, I, I didn't say that you couldn't, you didn't have to lock the cage for chimps. I said if you, if you, um, and they also use tools. Yes, yeah, yeah. But if you, if you have capuchins in a cage with a latch that a macaque will not undo, the capuchin mm-hmm. will undo it unless it's. Really so what I was padlocked. what I was trying to to get at is is, is to um, uh, that maybe the the, the 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 faculty we want to look at is just the creativity to explore the generative action space, right? But that's not the key in this case. Would you agree with that? Um, I, yes, although the clean experiment that that mm-hmm. was suggested, we we have yet to do. We haven't right. done exactly that. That would be interesting mm-hmm. to do. But an experiment that you have done that you described to us was this one where the animals required to fit an object into a mold. Right, right. And they're not able to do that with the more complex shapes. Right. Once you exceed, well, they they don't do it very well with one dimension, one feature that is just the length of the stick. But when you add a second dimension that is a cross piece, then they are, then they really have trouble. And they get there, but it's brute force solution. Yeah. But if, for example, I have not tried myself to do that kind of experiment with, say, squirrel monkey, um, which is, um, you know, in some ways considered a close relative to the capuchins. So, so Dorothy, to, to get to the finish line, um, t- two questions. So you're, I mean, uh, as marvelous work you've been exposing to us uh, about sk- skill uh, tool use in the wild, right, which is extremely hard to study. So... Um, so given all this experience you have in studying behavior under these ecologically realistic conditions, what is really Dorothy's law that we should all <laughs> adhere to in understanding behavior in the brain? Um, that's a hard one. A single law? Of course. I can't have a whole set? <laughs> How about a menu? Um, what's the first item on your menu? That, that the that the experimenter should do, that the scientist yeah, should do. Yeah, that we should all do. It might be advice to students. Mm-hmm. Look at the animal. Look at the behavior. Look at it in slow motion and look at it again. Mm-hmm. That's my advice. Okay, cool. Then, so Tony likes traveling, so we're going to send him to your lab four years from now, <laughs> and he's going to he's going to check he's going to check a prediction you're going to share with us today. So what's what's the key specific prediction? that you would like to commit yourself to today in this domain of tool use in, in non-human primates? I, I predict that young monkeys who are faced with a challenge of handling a novel stone, um, that they will, uh, that, the, that the trajectory for becoming expert at using a stone like that, the, the, 
the, the ease of learning to handle this novel stone, that there will be a developmental trajectory for that, 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 that the skill of handling stones uh, develops slowly over time with a lot of practice, and I'm not there to measure all the practice, mm-hmm. so I'm just sampling at time points. But I, I predict we're going to see... It's, it's not a very complicated prediction in the end. I don't know. That's not, that's not a great prediction for you. It's not a theory-driven <laughs> prediction at all. It might be disappointed for you, Chanel. We're going to see. Yeah, if you gave me another five minutes, I might think of another prediction. Yeah. Dorothy Fregasi, thank you very much for this conversation. Yeah, you're welcome. Kind of a wimpy prediction. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's the right. CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometrics and Biohybrid Systems. Project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.